Hey moms, welcome to Moms in the Know. I'm your host, Jennifer Zuniga, and I'm here today with Allison McDowell. Allison is, a, is an independent researcher, activist, and blogger. She's been studying in depth the working parts of the World Economic Forum's declared fourth industrial revolution and the global takeover of industries and public policies by the central banks, multinational corporations, big tech technocrats and billionaire funded foundations. I wanted to speak with Allison because I really wanna understand how this works and how these policies will impact my kids, your kids and our communities and their future. Welcome Allison. Thank you, thank you very much. Yes, there's, um, there's really a lot to what we're gonna talk about today. And I was watching, you have a wonderful nine minute uh, short video explaining what we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to add that into the link beneath okay. this interview. Uh, but it really kept it simple. So with that in mind, can you talk about what your research over the last, how many years have you been looking into this? Probably about six. Okay, so that's that's a long time. <laughs> I'm sure that's it. A lot of probably stones to unturn, but can you kind of, not in a nutshell, but you know, kind of organize for us what we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Um, well, so just just for context, I, I live in Philadelphia, so I'm in you know a, a city environment and um, you know a city that is has sort of gone through a lot of austerity, pretty you know poor city in terms of social services, and um, you know I entered this um, essentially as just a parent um, addressing things around the public schools and the school closure issue and privatization. So that was sort of my entry point. Um, and Philadelphia has a lot of. Um, institutions that are part of laying out a larger global program. Um, and among them is the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton Business School. Um, and they sort of develop innovative finance products and, and technology systems and systems tied to the healthcare. Um, and the former president of the University of Pennsylvania, her name was Judith Roden. And when she left the university, she became the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. And so the Rockefeller Foundation has been very influential in, for lack of a better word, they're, they're creating new markets in sort of social entrepreneurship or social innovations, ways of um, structuring finance around people's human needs um, that is linked into the technology sector often. And um, increasingly that technology sector includes predictive analytics and surveillance and these things that are coming in. And in my community, we're a smart city. So we're seeing more and more of that. And I think we, we've seen that, you know, unfolding over the past, you know, year or so um, under this sort of pandemic structure, what the capacity is of technology to monitor populations. Um, and so it's interesting because in around 2007, 2008, when the last global economic crash happened around housing. Um, Judith Rodin was the president of the Rockefeller Foundation and they started to set up this new um, type of capitalism. They call it stakeholder capitalism. And, and you can look up, folks can look up at the World Economic Forum. That's sort of what they've been embracing the last few years. And so this idea of packaging um, through public-private partnerships um, 
with cities who have often been sort of deprived of their tax income, right? These Most of our communities have been living through austerity. And then when you have global economic crashes, people have less tax revenue. So a lot of these gaps have been filled in by um, partners. And these partners um, can be um, often nonprofits or faith-based institutions that are gonna be offering social services. Um, and that is in the process of being restructured as an investment opportunity uh, for sort of these buckets of really concentrated wealth. You know, I think many people are familiar with the, the idea that, you know, there's, you know, a very small group of individuals and institutions that control the vast majority of wealth on the planet. <laughs> and there are lots of people who are living in debt or paycheck to paycheck. And so that doesn't make for a very robust uh, social service sector. Um, and so this new version that's coming is going to be linked to, um, it's like they call it outcomes-based contracts. And I was seeing this in schools. Um, they also call it pay for success finance, um, social impact bonds, um, you know, this partnership performance results act, these, these sorts of results data-driven evident, they call it evidence-based uh, programs. Um, and it was very reductive. So you would see things like in your schools, um, education being um, redefined as a test score right? Um, that the sum of how children were taught were being concentrated in narrow sectors, reading scores or math scores and other things that were important to children's education and their, their well-being were being pulled out to really focus on this data analytics. And that's because those are going to be investment opportunities for um, educational software companies. And, you know, increasingly in time, um, even wearable technology companies. Um, they are looking at our, our community, our commons spaces, like our public schools as profit centers because the machine needs to work that way because for the most part, the global economy has to keep growing or it will all fall apart. And most people don't have the money, the consumer spending can't keep it going. So they're creating new and sort of innovative um, ways to try to, um, keep growing the economy by essentially raiding all of our public assets. So I came into it through education so that the data-driven the analytics investment scheme was looking like educational software. Um, but the same thing is happening in other areas, other parts of social life. So people who need access to healthcare, health clinics, those are being become, becoming more and more data-driven. And we've seen, you know, in the past year, this very hard pivot to telemedicine and telehealth. Um, and increasingly, it will also include wearable and inject, ingestible technologies um, because those all provide data for these new um, financial programs that are coming online, not because um, online education is better for children or uh, you know, a telehealth appointment is any good for an elderly patient with dementia. <laughs> Those aren't actually good, but it's the model, um, not of just of, of the companies that are profiting on it directly, but um, the investment entities that are um, essentially making bets and investing on what the outcomes of these services are gonna be. Um, so it's kind of new, but essentially it's, it's if you reimagine and I tell people to think back if they haven't seen the movie, The Big Short, it's really good because it lays out sort of the nuts and bolts of how the, the housing crash happened and how people's homes and the mortgages on those homes 
were sort of sliced and diced and bundled and then and sold and put on the market as opportunities for legal gambling. And that's ultimately what it is. And so some people will say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. Like, how does the tranches work and these other things? But if you just keep it in your head that these very powerful actors um, are profiting off of this legalized gambling and they're setting the rules. So it doesn't necessarily have to make sense as long as all of the players in the game agree to the rules, even if they don't make sense to the regular person. Well, and that's what we're looking at next is is remaking the public commons, the social welfare services into the next gambling opportunity. Yeah, and it's actually better, I think, for for the people that are uh, creating this, that it is hard to understand. It doesn't make yeah. sense and people are busy. And But I think what I found so um, also interesting is that they're selling it as, you know, humanitarian, uh, work or it's it's going to be like in um, you know medicine or in, you know you can if if you have yourself monitored or hooked up to your blood pressure and if you eat the right foods if you do the things that are going to be healthy then you get points right or you get they they give you rewards and anyway they, they're trying to package it so it looks like it's either fun or, or gamification is a big yeah. And gamification is a big part. Yeah. And then the nonprofits, you know, or I'm sorry, not nonprofit, the foundations, mm -hmm. you know, oh, this is, we're doing, I think you called it, what is it? Well, well for good. We're doing well for. Yeah. Yeah. Doing, you know, doing well by doing good, that sort of thing that you're, you know, and, and I would say that the challenge is, is that again, if you get back to the fact that this concentrated wealth is held in a very few hands, um, if the gambling is only happening among the people at the top and they're always making more money off of the essentially the poverty or the trauma or the the, the um, lack of health or lack of education of the people at the bottom, there really is no incentive to eliminate that as a profit center. That you will have it, but it, it will be managed and it might be ameliorated like you might have poverty, but it won't be quite as, as, as miserable, or you might have, um, you know, I was thinking today about it in the context of healthcare and that there's a difference between managed healthcare and healing. Because if you're doing managed health, that means that there's always a profit center for the, the medical establishment to make money off of managing you as a either ill or potentially ill individual. If the paradigm is is healing, that you would you would create an environment in which people have the resources they need to, like have a healthy life and live in a healthy environment, then optimally, like once you reach a level of healing, like in the population, like you don't have as much business, which would, would technically for society be a good thing, but in this model of having it be for profit. Um, it's it's problematic. And, and I think that's what I would say with when people are saying that these technologies are beneficial or by participating in these systems are beneficial. Um, in, in many respects, especially if your um, ability to access needs for your life or your family's life is conditional on behaving in a certain way. You know, we, we know that there are many things that 
authorities, whether intentionally or not, tell us are good, that 10 years down the line, they say, oh, well, that, we were really wrong about that. <laughs> You know, that was, and any, I mean, I'm not, you know, sometimes they maybe knew that and something like tobacco, right? I mean, they'll sell you on a concept and then go, and then they'll sort of, after everyone's on that path, then they'll, they'll say, oh, actually that, that wasn't the case. It actually is harmful. So I guess that is my question. And there are still a lot of outliers around um, the impacts of like Wi-Fi radiation, like long-term exposures, um, screen time. These other things, like I was raised, you know, don't have too much screen time, right? You know, when there was a TV, right? We shouldn't have too much screen time. And now people, even really young children are expected to be on screens like large parts of the day. Um, and we're told that this is safe for us and it's healthier to do that than to be in the real world. Um, so people really need to like be questioning. And I think um, I would encourage people to, um, you know, I know it's hard if people have limited time, but to really be conscious of preserving your own, uh, your ability to make your own choices, informed choices, and to advocate that others also have the ability to make their own informed choices. Um, because right now we're, we're seeing a shift into, you know, I think a more absolutist approach to life that, that can be problematic, depending on whose, um, whose interests are ultimately being served. Is it the population or is it um, powerful actors in the space? Well, I think the challenge is that with, you know, media and just how things are presented, you know, oftentimes things are like, well, even the healthcare system, you know, they call it healthcare when, you know, like you were saying, I mean, I know that very clearly it's, you can't go and get a decent meal at a hospital. <laughs> you can't get nutritious food at a hospital. To me, it's very basic. You're not selling right. healthcare, you're selling you know, drugs and you're selling a system that is going to follow a person until they get in the grave. You know, So, so yeah, so it's how it's being presented. So if I'm a mom at a school and they're presenting this new learning program and we have to all take these, you know, well, it happened with my daughter in the sixth grade. Oh, we have all these new laptops, you know, start handing out laptops or, you know, you can rent the laptops. Um, nobody really questioned that because some people couldn't afford the laptops. So then it was like, oh, great. Everybody's equal. We're all going to have these laptops. We didn't understand how the laptops were going to, you know, be affecting our children in the classroom day to day, moment to moment. Yeah. You know, and when she comes home, having to be more time on the laptop, you know, yes. which takes me out of the picture as a mom, because I can no longer help her with her homework if she's always on the laptop. There's right. no discussion, there's no conversation, you know, so, so right, how it's being presented, it's very hard to um, know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, if it's being presented in a light that this is going to be great, <laughs> you know, right. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, we had a lot of issues with, um, you know, I was looking at, at data and the standardized testing, but then shifted into the technology because again, we had a very underfunded school district. And, you know, as parents, we would be involved in fundraisers and different activities. And it was always going to technology, right? Like, you know, we'd scramble to have the money to cover the school play or to have art supplies or to have these other things, but there was always money for the technology. and and. Um, you know, looking back a few years ago, I wrote a piece because the um, actually the, like the FBI had come out with some concerns about student data privacy and everyone was celebrating this, this development. 
And I said, well, you know, about 10 years ago, Lower Marion School District, which is a very affluent school district right outside the city on the main line, um, they were one of the first districts in this region that got the one-on-one -on -one laptops. And shortly thereafter, um, there were several families that realized that the school district was spying on their children in their home through the laptops. Mm. And so it was a it was a really big deal at the time. And um, you know, it, it, and the FBI kind of threw the kids under the bus. <laughs> You know, and these are the kids in Lower Marion. They were not, um, you know, kids in Philly. And so, you know, my thought was, wow. So they rolled out those laptops. They spied on like kids with quite a bit of privilege. The government didn't stand up for those families at the time. Ultimately, they did win in civil court and they won damages. Um, but it's, you know, 10 years or so later. And it's like no one remembers that even happened. And, and, and that's part of the narrative discussion is what is what is the history and what, um, you know, I, when I was, there was an entity foundations because foundations are often cr critical actors in advancing policies around data-driven practice um, and getting the technology in the schools. You know, and I initially thought when this happened to us that, um, it was about selling computers or selling software or selling cloud services. Um, and there was a meeting that I attended um, early on in my ad advocacy that after they had closed 23 schools in 2013, um, there was a meeting during the summer and I rallied people to go because usually when they have meetings in the summer, they don't want people to show up. And they were talking about implementing these school report cards. And I thought, that's crazy. You know, you've just wrecked the whole district and now you're going to grade them. And, and it wasn't going to apply to charter schools. So it wasn't going to be really fair as apples to oranges. And um, they were doing some other policies around consolidating um, applications to magnet schools and private schools altogether. And I was like, who is pushing these programs? Who is doing this? Who is doing this? And it was the Dell Foundation. So it was Michael Susan Dell. So that the Dell, you know, corporation, the computer corporation, I thought, oh, okay. So that's, you know, it's about computers and software. That's that's what this is about. And then later in the year, I saw the documentary about Snowden. And it, there was a scene where he was being asked in the hotel room when he met with the journalist to sort of prove himself, to, to validate that he was legit. And he started throwing down his badges on the bed, you know, and he's throwing the different clearances, you know, special clearance badges. And he threw down, he said, and here's my Dell ID. Oh my God, Dell ID? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Isn't that very interesting? And it turns out that actually um, the NSA is one of Dell's largest contractor, like clients, and that many of much of the information that Snowden pulled, like at the time, he did so as a Dell employee to the NSA. Hmm. So, so really, at that point, I thought, well, it's not just about selling the stuff. It actually there's a surveillance component. There's a signals intelligence component to that. And, and then it's not just about, um, you know, to what end? And this is what I would say, there's two forks to the signals intelligence element. One of it is, um, you know, a military, um, you know, social control element, but ultimately there's also signals intelligence in, um, in the investment communities. So many hedge funds also use gamification and game theory to aggregate data and make bets. So it's like, what kind of bet are you making? Are you making a bet around social control mechanisms? Are you making bets on investment purposes? And then what place does that have 
where children are involved in that. How is that data being fed into the system? Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. So, it it's a bigger ethical question. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is, so my child is on their phone, their computer, they're playing games, they're doing TikTok or whatever it is they do. They're collecting data on what kinds of things? So I think we're in a process right now of shifting to this next phase. Um, and I know you said not to scare people, but like the word <laughs> internet of bodies, I think it's useful yeah. for people to, to, to like the term. spend a little time and get a little bit familiar with what, what does the internet of bodies mean? Because we understand um, internet of things. Like yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't yet, but it's the idea of sensors, right? Data collection that your physical environment starts to interface with you and like collect data, you know, but yeah, your phone is a sensor. Um, and ultimately they see you as just another item, a thing in the internet of things, but that your body becomes um, something they'd like to know all about and your mind, like both, both parts of that. Um, and so for, you know, up until now on the internet, like there were definitely data trails and people are making a lot of money, money on data analytics, but it's not all held in one place, one convenient spot. And we are moving to a moment in which I think there will be a push to develop something called a digital identity. So they will say, look, you can be private. We'll, you'll have, we'll have a, self-sovereign identity, or it might be on blockchain, might be on something else. We'll hold all your data and it'll be all locked up and it'll be great. And then you can choose who gets to see what data. And in some cases, these blockchain identities, and this is important for your audience, start prenatally. Wow. Okay. So like for parents to understand, um, in 2018, the first blockchain baby was born. And can you just, what is blockchain? So blockchain is, um, I would say most people who are somewhat familiar with it, think of it as what it enables cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. Like if, if people are in that space, that's what many people are familiar with it as. But ultimately it is a ledger. It is a, um, a ledger that is decentralized. So it's shared among different computers. So you can't just like have your hard drive crash and it goes away. It's encrypted. Um, so it's supposed to be permanent and there's cryptographic elements that create that have the Bitcoin tied into that. And it's the idea that you have a public and a private key so you can have access or not to the different information about you. And so it's not just currently, um, it's any digital asset, but an asset can be even like a legal status or a civil record. So if you imagine your permanent record, you know, when you were a kid and then you're like, you better behave if you get out of line that's going on your permanent record. Well, ultimately, if they are, they roll this out that the blockchain is envisioned as a permanent record of everything about you. So in Tanzania, where they had the first blockchain baby, they assigned a unique identifier to the pregnant mother and to the unborn child and to like the medical service provider. It was doing prenatal care. And then they would track the prenatal care on the blockchain. So one of the things that got put into the permanent record was 
you know, did this woman participate in the prenatal care as laid out by the service provider? Um, now, I will say that I'm very cognizant of health disparities, you know, in communities around and, and you know, issues around health outcomes for, for pregnant women and, and children. Um, at the same time, I think the idea of having choice around your body and your health choices is really important. And in this case, often through humanitarian aid, there are larger corporate and big pharmaceutical actors in that space. And there are histories of um, injustice carried out, especially around reproduction for like black and brown women, that if you were put in a position that you had to perform on and have everything recorded on blockchain, there might be some ethical concerns about that. So, you know, just unpacking this bigger issue. So theoretically, this unborn child will be on blockchain. Um, now the state of Illinois, because it's not just human, like way over there in, in Tanzania, um, the state of Illinois also was examining um, a pilot program to put all birth certificates on blockchain. So they did it with a company called Evernim. So birth certificates on blockchain. There are a number of pilots around putting um, land registry. So if you own property, that goes on blockchain. Um, we're hearing more and more about voting records, right? Oh, there's voting irregularities. We should put that on blockchain. We should have blockchain voting. Um, you know, now with the new administration, um, Delaware is a center of blockchain healthcare and electronic health records. So, you know, they've been investigating putting these electronic health records on blockchain. So there are many elements um, beyond a cryptocurrency or a Bitcoin transaction that can be layered into this permanent record. And while it is theoretically private, um, MIT, um, which is you know, the academic institution that has really been a leader in the space of creating the digital currency movement, they have software that's now spun out into a corporation called Enigma that allows them to do searches on encrypted data. So you can hold your data all in, you know, together behind your locked door, but they have a back end and they might not know it's you in particular, but they could query a group of who are all the pregnant women that were serviced by this provider and what were the data-driven outcomes to serve an investment opportunity, right? And so even though they might not know which particular woman's data it was, in aggregate, they would be able to validate it for these deals but then the question becomes, that means that the services that you get will have to be scalable and create all the data. So really, if you'd prefer not to have um, a highly technologized um, maternal health, you know, prenatal healthcare process, you're not actually going to get it because the investment structure will be set up such as it preferences that model. You know, if you want a midwife, you want a home birth, you want something that's not that, um, those choices are going to increasingly be suppressed um, in favor of choices that are easy and scalable um, for these investment deals, which I think is not how life should go. But if we don't actually um, speak out about it and start talking about the ethics of it, it's going to be hard to roll it back. So like, let's say somebody has the economic means and they want to have a home birth yeah. and they don't, and they have, you know, um, private insurance or will that be possible? 
Well, I mean, I guess it's really unclear, right? I mean, yeah. given given how things have happened in, you know, the past year around um, social attitudes around people's health choices, um, and it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think increasingly one of the other things they want to put on blockchain is credentialing. Um, so your, your credentials, your professional credentials, right? Are you a, a, a lawyer, a realtor, are you a doctor, or you a teacher? You've, you're up to date with all of your certifications. And so then I guess the question would be um, if you were getting medical care from, and you could pay for it privately for someone who was not certified. Um, and, and I guess that would be a question because I think increasingly alternative options are going to be at risk of not being able to be certified. Hmm. So, um, you know, I'm sure if you're a billionaire and you have your own island or wilderness preserve, right. you can fly in your own care provider. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I even have a friend who's sort of, you know, can, you know, their, their thought processes is, I mean, I don't know, it's purely speculative, but that, you know, a number of the, the high profile holistic folks that have been, are no longer with us are actually maybe whisked away to be private physicians to other you know, people for this moment, but it's totally speculative, but it's an interesting thought, thought experiment. So. Well, because when I hear about this and also when I look at everything else going on in the world, I just think, oh, I'm just going to buy some land, you know, get 20 acres and have a farm and have animals and grow my own food. But that's not probably really will be doable because if they're going to put, they'll know a lot about me just through you know, what, when I buy it through the blockchain, you know, real estate and. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying not to get too dark, but like, I don't, I think if people really understood the scope of what was unfolding because it's so limiting. Right. And, and I think for me, it's a little challenging because I, come at things more from like a progressive left standpoint. And most of those people really don't get this, but I think that there, there are, you know, elements of, you know, addressing historical injustice that we need to do that this system that is coming, whether it's universal basic income or some did, it will be on blockchain, it will be trackable, that it's not going to truly address the structural problems that are coming, that the people aren't organized enough to demand it from our government, which is essentially now an extension of Google and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Citigroup. I mean, that's that, you know, it's not a partisan issue. That's just how it is. They have enough money to buy both sides all the way up and mm-hmm. the media. Um, so, yeah, so it has to be, but in order to oppose it, I think people have to be able to understand that these decisions are being, are happening at a global scale um, because the, the things that are happening in our, my child's school are really happening around the world and in in you know western nations in more advanced technological nations very similar but then they're getting stripped down versions in africa and india and these um the chromebook education that they call it low-cost private school because they have to pay fees where the teachers are essentially delivering scripted lessons coming out of cambridge massachusetts that's this bridges international model um, that that is being set up as a human capital bond market. You know, and, and the way I see it is that it's it's a form of digital enslavement. And um, and maybe I can tell you a little bit about the pre-K equation. Like- Yes, yes, please. Useful. So 
this probably seems kind of abstract. A lot of this stuff, it's like, you know, what does it actually look like? And really for the past eight years or so, this model came out of the United Kingdom. Sir Ronald Cohen, he was a Harvard, he's a Harvard MBA, but he's based in the UK. And then Michael Bloomberg brought, brought it over here and it's advanced with Goldman Sachs among others. And this whole idea of these contracts and making money off of social services, which seems like a crazy idea, is based on, on the notion and again, it's very abstract and it doesn't necessarily have a basis in reality, but of a cost offset that you use predictive analytics to profile a person into being um, a future burden and that that has a cost to it. Whether this it's a child who's going to need special education services, whether it's um, an incarcerated youth who may be reincarcerated, whether it's, um, you know, a jobless person who's depressed and, and unemployed, that there are these cost offsets out there that have, um, that universities have sort of partnered and gotten funding to develop an equation that will justify that if you um, fix that person so that they don't require that later level of intervention that is expensive, if you intervene early at a lower cost, that you can cost share the difference with the investor. And, and in this case, I'm going to walk through um, a preschool um, pre-K social impact bond. And this one was first um, piloted in Salt Lake City, Utah, and it was with the backing of Goldman Sachs. And the idea of this cost offset was if they gave um, quality pre-K to children who were screened into this program, um, that they would reduce the amount of special education funding. So if we give kids special education, it's very expensive. Maybe we'll just give them pre-K and they won't need it. And so they negotiated that if they hit a certain target, they would be paid back. Goldman Sachs would be paid back their investment plus um, some of the cost difference. From the government. The pre-K going, yeah, the government. So the cost between offering pre-K and offering special education, the special education was more expensive. So there was a gap and they would like carve out a bit of the, that slice and give it to the investor if they met their success metrics. So the kids were screened into the program. Um, I think it was about a hundred kids. Um, you can get, folks can look it up in the New York Times. It's the Salt Lake City um, pre-K social impact bond. Um, and in the end, only one child out of a hundred qualified for special education services which was pretty suspect at the time even because it wasn't super high-end pre-K. It was kind of bare bones, the amount of money. They didn't go way over the top on the money they put into this program. And so like knowing my, the ropes about the education system, you realize how the numbers can be gamed you know, to make them look a certain way. And so either it was that some of these children wouldn't have needed special education at all, um, you know, maybe they were English as a second language, you know, that it wasn't, an they just needed time to learn English or there were kids who were gonna be deprived of services they actually did need. But they said, this is kind of weird that only of all of the, the kids in this program, only like one is getting special education, but nevertheless, Goldman Sachs, you know, made, um, you know, quite a bit of money on this. And the, so when you ahead. say quite, when you say quite a bit of money, I'm just curious, like you think it was- Well, like it's, a, it's a proof. So they met the success metric, but the deal hasn't scaled. So for them to make quite a bit of money, they, I mean, they made the money, they made, they showed that it worked. Okay. Maybe that's a better way to put it. They showed that this model would work for the investor. 
Now the challenge has been in about the six or so years since that happened, um, they haven't been able to scale them, right? Like Goldman Sachs would like that to be like in every community, one of these programs. And then if so, all of those little bits of money, that's okay. And the other piece of this, so, okay. It's a lot. A little bit of money, there's a lot. Okay, so the real money, okay. And I will say this, it's not in the slice. The big money that we're talking about, if they can bring these deals to scale, it's not in the slice that they get in each individual deal. But the plan is that they were going to securitize the debt. So remember we talked about the mortgage debt and the gambling with the houses. They're going to do the same thing with the pre-K debt. You know, and I have I have a, a slide, a screenshot from Ready Nation and the Kauffman Foundation that says we're going to create asset-backed securities to trade on global markets with the pre-K debt. I mean, it's they, they, the same thing that they did with mortgages and bundling them and trading them. We're going to do this with the pre-K debt. And they when you say to yeah, get enough, they need thousands and thousands of these deals to make that work. And they haven't done it yet, but they're working very, very hard to make this happen. And um, can you just be specific when you say the pre-K debt, that's what, where's that debt coming from? So the money that is being advanced to pay for the pre-K program, yeah, right? So the money that is, is advanced into the program to the service provider, that debt, the investor securitizes that debt and I trades see. it. Okay. okay. And so essentially it's like a futures market. We're treating these toddlers as a commodities. It's commodities like pork bellies, corn, cotton. Toddlers. It's a human capital commodity, right? We've got, here's a whole, you know, here's a lot of a hundred toddlers in Salt Lake City. There are, you know, how many tranches of investment? So the, the money isn't so much in the negotiating the individual deal, but it is unlocking these equity markets to the bigger game of gambling. Okay. But it, that game is only going to work if it can happen tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these deals. And they haven't been able to do it. And I think one of the reasons they have not yet been able to do it is that they need a blockchain identity to automate it, to, to gather the data, because these toddlers probably in the scheme of things will be subjected to multiple investment opportunities over the course of their college and career readiness, right? They'll, they'll have the, this, special education one at kindergarten, then they'll have a reading score at third grade, then they'll have a career pathway program in high school, and then they're gonna have a reskilling. And then in the schools, there are going to be community health centers. So then they'll have telemedicine in the schools. And so once they actually create a digital space for all of the data analytics to hang and to be used for predictive profiling, um, you know, my husband, he had a, his PhD professor, he said, you know, out of one pig, many sausages, right? So you have, you have, you have, once you have the structure set, you can repeat, 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 and gamble, 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 and you can gamble across any given child many different ways. If, the, if we allow this to happen, if we actually allow children in their debt tied to education or healthcare to become a financial investment. So I will say, so that's, so that's, that's the pre-K concept. The equation that is being used for this 
they guarantee a seven to 10% rate of return on early childhood investing. And this is coming out of the University of Chicago and it's an individual, his name is James Heckman, Jim Heckman. And he's a Nobel prize winning economist. And so, and you know, he's out of the, you know, Becker Friedman School of Economics. So the Chicago boys, neoliberalism, and he's being paid by open society to, you know, George Soros to make these um, equations work, this equation work. It's up to 13% if you get health data analytics. And that's why we're gonna start to see smart playgrounds and wearable technology because they want the health data off of the children to get that extra bit of money. Which is crazy to think like kids are only gonna be able to play if they play right and they create health outcomes data. But that is, that is the structure um, and it's not just for pre-K but it's also for home visits. A similar program will be used for maternal home visits. Uh, both pre and post birth for women on Medicaid. And that pilot is in South Carolina, that pilot program. And in, in that program, low-income women are tracked with a behavior tracking app that was developed by Pam Omidyar, uh, Pierre Omidyar's wife and Pierre Omidyar created eBay. So I remember being at, at the University of Pennsylvania on a talk about some of this stuff. And I said, you know, you're not gonna solve poverty with an app. You know, the implication was this, that these women were just making bad choices and, you know, all, all you need was a little behavioral regulation with a phone app that was going to do it. And, you know, my concern, and I actually was in touch with um, the state treasurer of South Carolina about this because he was struggling with it in his, you know, his state. Um, you know, what did this mean to have these pregnant women, again, harnessed into this investment system? And, you um, it was how you engaged with the content on this app, you know, and it was voluntary at the moment, um, but it was with Nurse Family Partnership, which is a national program. And I guess my question is moving forward, what happens if it's not voluntary or what happens when somehow your results on this app may come under the radar of Child Protective Services, right? Or maybe you do or don't get to take your child home from the hospital, you know, in these these situations, especially now that we have much higher levels of, you know, economic distress, right? People in mm -hmm. economic distress. Um, so it's it's kind of heavy to think about, but these these are programs that have been put into place in different parts of the country, and they're being piloted. The home visit legislation is in many states, and it's very difficult because on the one hand, you want people to get what they need, right? And there is a lot of need. There are tremendous tremendous needs. But that need shouldn't be an investment opportunity tied to predictive analytics and behavioral surveillance. Well, also, what like a few things are crossing my mind when you are describing this. One, that it's not actually just limited to the poor. I can see it being used kind of in a reverse. That even for you know middle or upper income um, folks, like if your kids do X Y Z, then they get. I think we even talk about them rewards. Right. So, Achievement bands, badges. Yeah, maybe they'll get, you know, when they're applying to colleges and they're applying to the Ivy schools, and maybe they'll get a little bit bonuses if they follow this procedure, do things this way to get them into right. this college. Or mm -hmm. I can see it being used in, in different ways. But, um, and then the other thing that I was, it, it's, it's very sinister, but then you can also see how this could be tied to, okay, well, it's almost like input information, output, you know, behavior. So if they yeah. 
put programming. information, programming our kids, our high schoolers. And I see how they're so, um, you know, connected to their phones. And I don't even know what they're looking at on TikTok, but I know that these platforms are really socially programming kids. And I see it with my own kids. So if they program them with certain information or beliefs, uh, right. and, and then it's almost like you can create the world that if you're a billionaire, or if you're one right. of those people who are preparing this kind of technology, you can create the kind of world you want to live in. It might take a few years, but if I want to create, you know, more, uh, you know, I mean, you name it, I can just choose if I want more doctors, if I want more lawyers, if I need some gardeners, I can just put in rewards and programming for whatever I want, right. or if I want more dependent people, you know, right. I can do that. So it sounds kind of like, oh, that sounds really out there. But if you would have explained what you're explaining to me 20 years ago, I would have been like, what? <laughs> That's really, you, you, you're taking this to a whole nother level. But we're getting closer, inching along closer to this new reality. Yeah. Well, you know, and it does go way back. Like if you actually do peel it back, um, you know, th there's Mark Tucker, out of Rochester, New York, he recently retired, but he's with something called the National Center on Education and the Economy. And when the when Bill Clinton was first elected to office, on behalf of like the US Chamber of Commerce, and he was working for the Carnegie Corporation, he wrote a letter to Hillary, and he sort of laid out essentially a future of uh, workforce aligned education. And that education would be remade as a systems engineering process to meet the needs of U.S. industries. And through, and they said, you know, the U.S. people would not accept like an apprenticeship model that they thought that was lesser than. So they had the, these new pathways to get to this end goal. But the goal was, was very much to very tightly align educational material to the needs of the existing corporate interests. And I guess then my, my question would be like, given where we are now and the level of a gig economy, right? A global gig economy, largely um, lack of stability in work. Um, many people never recovered after the last global crash, right? That, that was sort of the task grab at gig economy, contracting work, um, co-working space, Thing. It's going to be who knows what's going to happen post lockdown. You know, they've already been talking about the nature of the future of work changing. Is it in the best interest of humanity to feed our children into a machine where they anticipate that an artificial intelligence algorithm is going to assign them micro work based on their skills badges? Um, because ultimately, in this next phase of globalization through online you know, platform labor and increasingly even, you know, people who have kids that are in gaming spaces, the haptics, like the virtual reality headsets, the augmented reality, the hand controllers, um, those are being set up to run remote robotics. <laughs> so ultimately it's, it's, it seems far-fetched, but in the coming decade, when you hear folks talk about the future of work, the people in Davos, Switzerland with the World Economic Forum are imagining, wow, won't it be great when we can have the AI pick between the kids in Poland, 
uh, Singapore and, you know, Sydney, and they can just compete for the best reputation, the best skill points at this particular task at the lowest price, you know, and the kids will never, you know, like it, it'll be this ongoing instability. And so I don't think any of us would want see that as a satisfying future to be chasing badges, chasing, competing against the world. Um, and so I'm not like coming at this from a nationalist frame, but like we need to actually, people who are unclear about immigration and depressing wages are not understanding that the plan is this telepresence labor. Um, and there's really no regulation that's going to protect um, workers, um, whether they be workers in the US or workers in India from this future if we don't all stand collectively together and oppose it. And we need, we're ultimately going to have to stand up against the technology companies that are facilitating this. Um, but meanwhile, the, these finance and technology companies are the ones creating the quote unquote economic growth such as it is. So it's quite a bit of a conundrum but I think it's going to come to a point that people will not tolerate the kind of work environment that that they hope to sell us on. I believe in the human spirit. I believe in mothers. I believe in mothers protecting kids. And I believe in like the human consciousness and like compassion and the, the true physicality of life and connection that is not gonna happen in a virtual reality room. You know, I believe in that too. And just to take what you just said a step further. Okay. So if they have these, if you keep people just below, just struggling enough mm -hmm. and then give them some, you know, tokens for good behavior, then you can bring them up a little bit. So then you're really training them. It's kind of like Pablo's dogs or the mice, you know, yeah. where they push something and then they got a treat. So, and you see that, I see that in the gaming now, you know, even with, you know, like these Xbox games that my kids used to play when they were little, I would get the physical ones where they'd act, their bodies would have to actually move and jump <laughs> over hurdles and actually do things. And I thought, well, that's good. They're moving, but I would play them sometimes with them. And I remember these gold tokens and they made it really excited. Oh, you got gold tokens because you jumped over this or because you, you know, engaged yeah. in that. So I can see that virtual playing into this reality world and offering these tokens for good behavior to then augment your poor pay <laughs> or maybe you get to live in a you know i guess you're i, I heard you talking about the tiny homes so maybe yeah. you get to live in you know one of the cool tiny homes if you prescribe to this behavior right um, well and the thing is too a lot of um this this um, impact investment program, what what Jim Heckman, the, the professor from the University of Chicago has said is that in education, they, they can't move as data, um, cognitive knowledge, because in that they, they identify it as like IQ. They're like IQ hardens up around the age of 10. It doesn't move much. And this game of gambling is predicated on movement, that the number moves in a direction or, you know, I guess forward, hopefully exclusively, but how far, you know, how much improvement that do you have? But they said, and this was a presentation he and, and JB Pritzker, who's now the governor of Illinois, who was his backer, they said, what we can change is character. That is dynamic. And so they can change character with gamification 
and they can change it digitally. So that's the number they're going to use because that's what they can change to facilitate this game because it doesn't really mean that they're materially benefiting children in any real sense. They just need to move the number to assign behavior a number and to make the number move. And so what I, what I meant to say is, so that they can make money on it. Yes. Right. And it's all abstract. This does not mean that because this successful deal that these children are going to have better futures. All it means is that the number, the behavior number went in the direction it was supposed to go. And what I'm, what I'm saying too, is once this, these deals are securitized for gambling, there will be someone who bets it goes down. <laughs> so exactly. in the big short, the people who made the big money were the people who understood what was happening and held out and then were able to hold on long enough to see it all crash because their bet was that it was going to crash. And so if you imagine this very twisted version of the world, it was terrible that, you know, in the, the one of the scenes in the movie, the guy who is like the mentor to these young guys to tell them, and they were so excited to make, cut this deal. And they're just like beside themselves. And he's like, wait a minute, do you realize if you are right, the whole global economy is going to be crashed and people are going to lose their housing and for every X number of people like unemployed, the suicide rate goes up. So you're celebrating this because in your mind, it's just a deal, but these deals have real consequences for actual real people. Like it kind of like brought the tone down. And so um, imagine this next version, the next time out is that it's actually human futures and that somebody's betting that these children achieve their expected behavioral progress. And some people are betting that they don't. And then potentially you have a smart environment and wearable technologies that track you in that smart environment that may, who knows, make it more or less difficult for you to accomplish your behavioral goals. And who's to say that that won't happen? Because my concern is with artificial intelligence getting out ahead of things, there are programmers and people who are in some ways very bright, but are not ever imagining it will get beyond them. And I, I think that we would do well to be a little more humble about what we're messing around in um, because the consequences of not appreciating the dangers are gonna be really significant. I can see that. I mean, I can picture a world if I were, you know, betting in this game that we're talking about that is happening. Can I say that? That already yeah. does happen. Yeah. yeah. So that is happening. And if I make money when I improve a child's test score, you know, in the inner city kids, but maybe all the test scores have been improving. So, okay, well, maybe then what I need to do is do something to influence them so that they will get, uh, have bad test scores. So maybe I need to, you know, tweak the machine a little bit. Well, not even the machine, but basically maybe I should, um, maybe, I don't know, change some of the data that I'm giving them in their lessons or something so that I'll well, be setting them up for failure. Well, and no, but so my child, when they were in high school, they had something called SLOWS. What a crazy acronym, Student Learning Objectives. And they were to show growth. Right. And so, and this is happening in the schools now where kids are being tested on things that they haven't been taught. 
to create the baseline to show the growth. Exactly. That's but the kids, the kids don't know why you would why would you test me on something I don't know? And then they they fall apart because they're like, I don't know this thing. And then they feel like dumb. And you're just doing that because you're creating this data baseline to show growth, but it's it's twisted. It's and twisted. you know, my child had like I told them that I opted them out. I said they can't do these slows, but in gym, so they would be like, okay. Well, we're going to have you run, you know, the mile with no training and then run it again. But the, the, the teachers were incentivized to have the first time out be really bad. And what I think is that, like, in this moment um, of this public health situation, um, especially in the beginning when the, the, the response was so fumbling, right, everything that, you know, supplies or treatments or tests, you know, these different things are all falling apart. If you imagine that the goal is for the next pandemic to show improvement, you want the first time to be really wretched <laughs> because then your, your zone of growth and improvement is gonna be much greater than had you actually done it really well the first time. And, and so, and there are these vaccine bonds and pandemic bonds that the World Bank is packaging. And people have no clue that public health is part of a global investment program. Can you tell me about that? What are the pandemic and vaccine bonds? And so the World Bank, you know, is has been developing these. I think 2014, and so some of the first ones were for Ebola, around Ebola. So they would say, "Look, there are these catastrophic events that the governments can't pay for, and so we're going to." create like essentially, you know, a financial investment product that's sort of a gamble. It's like the insurance, right? Like, is it going to, are you going to have a pandemic or not? And if you look at like the Ebola pandemic bonds, they never paid out for the countries. Like they never actually hit the terms to pay, to benefit the people who were the government officials trying to deal with Ebola. Um, but they did benefit the investors. And again, it's one of these things that depending on how you game the numbers, you know, they were even saying like the death rates, like, oh, maybe you have to hit a certain death rate before it pays out. Well, then you're incentivizing, allowing more people to die so that you can get this monetary payout to help the other people who ha haven't died yet. Uh -huh. And so, you know, the question is, why are we doing, most people don't even know that those markets exist, but they're, they're, their structures to run global capital because it's too concentrated. And, um, you know, these vaccine bonds, which Gavi, the Gates Foundation is behind, um, you know, are setting up impact markets tied to, you know, future programs of injections and various things. And it's tied to global finance and gambling. And so once you understand that, it makes you question more, what are the motivations? And, how do those motivations of financial interests affect um, policy decisions? Do you think because like Goldman Sachs has a has a program? Um, it's a return on investment on mask wearing. What <laughs> return on investment on investment mask, mask wearing for the global economy? Yeah. So now Goldman Sachs essentially has set up a financial market around mask wearing, with the cost offset being economic activity, right? Um, Goldman Sachs also has a lockdown index with Google and I believe Oxford. And it's not a COVID lockdown index and it's not a coronavirus lockdown index. 
Goldman Sachs essentially can lock down the global economy to run, to, to structure, to, to the ends that advantage them financially. And it's out of hand. And so we, we have to, once you put these lenses on of like, oh, we're talking about things as public benefits. We're talking about things as providing children with what they need to be participants, you know, in the global economy and take care of their families. Or we're, we're imagining this as being, how do we give people proper um, healthcare and mental health services so that they can um, live productive lives? And oh, we're, we're, we care about public health because, you know, we want people to, to, to stay alive. But in many cases, once that is financialized, that's not the primary driver. The tri primary driver become these global markets and, and they're aligned um, to the sustainable development goals, which is really hard because right now, and it's going to be happening even more strongly with the new administration, there is going to be a, a rollout with post COVID of um, social impact investing tied to these sustainable development goals, which sound great unless you understand that it is about um, remaking the world as data for global deals and, and remaking education as goal four, healthcare as goal three, hunger as goal two, like all of the things, mostly these sustainable development goals are not about the environment, which is what people, if you haven't looked at them might think, it's about managing the poor, but increasing lots of people in relation to the natural world in ways that advance more, more financial involvement, more technology surveillance. And, but they package it in a really pretty bow and it makes it really hard to talk about that we're being sold something that's not true. Yeah, the motivations so, there are not what most people think. So can you talk about like how and where are these plans made? Because right now, you know, people might just be thinking, oh, like I know there was the, okay, the World Economic Forum Right. And so they have different meetings that people, the players show up and they talk about, you know, these agendas, they put them out there. Right. What are some of those big? Well, I mean, most communities have like regional plans, you know, and they're, you know, regional plans tied to accomplishing the sustainable development goals, 2030. Um, Michael Bloomberg is a major player in the space. Um, he, his background, essentially, he was the ambassador to the World Health Organization and the UN for climate justice and his billionaire status, his background is in electrical engineering and data analytics and has, was very much involved in sort of remaking New York City for investment purposes and also with technological surveillance with Microsoft. So he's very invested in preventative healthcare kind of stuff and environmental things, but it's about channeling um, social entrepreneur capital. Um, so he actually has a program with Harvard Kennedy School where they train up um, municipal officials, both elected officials and like high level administrators to do data-driven government. Um, it's also coming out of quite a few of the academic institutions. So NYU Stern's Business School, Stanford, um, Georgetown, Penn, um, they train administra municipal administrators in these, they call it like evidence-based, data-driven government nudges. Um, you know, 
a lot of this came online under the Obama administration and Cass Dunstein, the idea of these digital nudges and behavioral economics. Of course, no one is telling you that the behavioral economics are because they're gonna put us in an augmented reality video game world and bet on us, right? Like they don't say that part. They're just like, oh, nudges, isn't this here? I'm gonna write this nice feature article on a digital nudge and it's interesting, but it's not so interesting if it means like your, your COVID nudge ban says you can't like walk to the end of your driveway, right? Then that, that kind of level of intrusion is very different. Um, so I would say it's coming through Bloomberg, it's coming through regional planning commissions. Um, you know, there's a lot around Agenda 21, um, these alignments of essentially this idea of creating like dense urban environments and sort of pulling people out of rural areas. And, you know, I say this cause I love my, I used to love my city, like until it became it's like, it feels really sad right now how much we've lost of what I loved Philadelphia for. I'm not against cities, I actually love what cities were, um, but it shouldn't be done to create a surveillance state. It shouldn't be done to profit these entities that are really about just self-aggrandizement and concentrated power. It shouldn't be that. Um, so, yeah, so you if you look at Davos, um, the impact management project, they're the, the ones that are like are sort of coordinating these assets going through the sustainable development goals. It's they call it ESG investing. So it's environmental, social, and governance. And it, it's it's hard to argue with, right? Like um, if you're gonna do investments, do you want to invest in the bad thing or the good thing? Well, I will say when we were talking about the pre-K equations and changing behavior. Um, an example of what that looks like is there's a company called Hatch Education that I found several years ago. And they make something called the We Play Smart Table. And it's like a, if you have a picture of a big screen TV like parallel to the floor. And on two corners of it, there's a fisheye camera. And you have the preschool kids play at the table together with some sort of digital puzzle or digital, it's a tact, like a touch screen. And they get recorded and they get scored on their social behavior. And then that's what feeds into these investment markets, right? And, and these are already in, being used in Educare franchises, which are Head Start, largely Head Start programs. Um, you know, and the, I know that they're using them in North Tulsa. So it's the hundredth year of the race massacre there. And they're putting black kids on <laughs> surveillance play tables in North Tulsa and calling it a day. but. That would be framed as an ESG investment. That would be framed as a social investment. Look, we're providing quality pre-K to these children. And so in Jan last January, I went and I, I was speaking at a Unitarian church and I was trying to, I'm like, I need to tell y'all, like if your endowments, if your church endowments, if your pension funds are being invested in ESG investments, we need to look a little further and ask, are there kids on surveillance play tables behind that? Like, what is that really? You know, is, is, are these data-driven impact investments running on devices that are mined by children in Congo, you know, with the cobalt for these devices that are, you know, we're investing in iPad tablets in Africa or India, you know, for this online education so that we can say we had a good impact because all of that has a cost, both a human cost and an environmental cost. Um, that is conveniently often not calculated. Well, um, and it sounds like eventually could then be bet upon. 
that. Yeah, it, it could be bet upon. And, you know, I, I did a big program with a, a someone in Tel Aviv because right now, like a lot of this tech, there are connections between, you know, the United States, um, Israel, the UK, it's this nexus, you know, Oracle, IBM, Dell, they're all everywhere. They don't belong to one country. And Israel has been grown up as like a uh, the um, startup nation, like tech, you know, rivaling Silicon Valley. And and their their reach is great because they're geographically small, so they have very international. And but now they're shifting to social impact. And so I'm, what I was trying to say is like, hey, people in Tel Aviv, like you're having economic growth in your country based on technology and now social impact. But that might mean that your grandkids become investment commodities of people you know, the hedge funds in New York or Jack Ma in China or the Vatican Bank. Because if we don't sort of wake to this larger structure that's kind of rolling out, um, unless you actually can buy your own island, we're all gonna be a part of it. I don't think that, you know, some people talk about it being an issue of class, but I, I'm like, it's a, it's a very thin layer of billionaires <laughs> And then, you know, another, you know, slightly thicker layer of administrators of the digital jail and then everybody else. So if we actually understood that, like we would be very powerful. But in this moment, I think people have been meant to um, point fingers at each other in ways um, on issues that ultimately aren't the big issue. The big issue is humanity versus artificial intelligence. Yeah, oh, I, I get that. And just for a second, because when you're talking about, I want to go back to, you were talking about, um, you know, a child in playing on the PlayStation and their data being taken in. Um, and then that data is collected and, but you're, oh, you're talking about behavior. So if they yeah. see that this boy is, or girl is uh, maybe, um, you know, displaying anger. You know, right. they could categorize that. Oh, that's going to be. I super. hate the surveillance play table. <laughs> yeah, that's going to. Right. There you go. Right. Let's let's break it. <laughs> but if that so then they can can they then put that in in now this kid is on blockchain. Well, mm -hmm. this candidate, this little toddler, whoever he is, looks like he could end up in, you know, I don't know, in prison later or right. then he would have interventions or. How do you see that? Or has that been talked about? Do you know? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, the profiling, because that has always, that has been in place already. The more granular the data, the more detailed the profiling. And I will say too, my concern is that in some short order, genomic stuff, predictive profiling, like, because a lot of this runs with the, like a eugenics undercurrent, um, especially now in, like in Chula Vista, California, they're testing kids for COVID and putting the information on blockchain to, for them to have face-to-face -face education. That was their plan. Just kids. So, my, so these were students to access face-to-face -face public education, the students in Chula Vista schools. I don't know if the teachers had to too, but these kids were being put on blockchain essentially um, you know, for their own good. So these setups are again, being piloted here and there in various places. Um, but this more, yeah. Like, is there genomic data? Is it just the RNA stuff or did they put in DNA? Like what else is, is in that electronic health record element? Um, yeah, so the, the, the profiling thing is, is very real. I mean, even existing, many of the online education systems are run by artificial intelligence. They call it personalized learning. And that's supposed to make us feel good because 
I think in our country, we're all individuals, right? We love to feel like we're individuals, but really personalized learning means like an AI is learning your kid and deciding what kind of pathway they want to be on. Like you can't just learn anything you want to learn. You get to learn the next thing that the algorithm says is the next thing that's just like precision learning for you. And, you know, again, that creates a feedback loop. And, you know, what happens if your kid just has a really bad year? You know, your the parents get divorced or they parent loses a job or they have an illness or whatever. And then they get stuck in some like they have a bad and they can never get out of it because the AI just reinforces that. And I, you know, I heard that quite a bit with like in our school systems, we had Khan Academy, um, these online math programs, but you'd have to get every single thing right to move on. Some kids could never get all of the things right. So they just get more and more frustrated, which created more and more of a problem. And, you know, I think they do, they want certain personality types. And like I said, with Snowden, um, like he was homeschooled, like no Snowden's gonna get in the NSA again. <laughs> you know, like they're going to track like what is, who are the leaders, who are the followers, who are the rule breakers? I mean, maybe some of the rule breakers will be like, you know, lifted up to be the protégés of, you know, the blockchain digital jail administrators because they need a few of those but you know i think the behavioral engineering is a real real concern mm -hmm. um and especially if um, mental health becomes an impact market too because then it's like well we need to re-engineer you to optimize you to be a good global citizen you know according to these rules that we've established that are good social norms mm -hmm. And who is setting those, right? Is it IBM and, you know, Cargill and Battelle who are deciding what the good um, global citizens act like? I mean, there's, there's a program called, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember. Oh, it slipped my mind. It's a playground. Um, a lot of schools in Philadelphia would hire them and they would have facilitators on the playgrounds because like the school's budgets were so thin, they didn't have aids to watch the kids at recess and gosh it's slipping my mind but like it was funded by Battelle which is like a defense contractor and they had rubrics for play like good recess play and what it looked like and so everything was becoming more and more rigid and training kids up for <clears throat> a world that is increasingly mechanized and robotics you know like I, I had critiques of you know the lego robotics activities right like no one's telling your kids like when you're programming learning to program them to do a robot to play basketball that like that's actually the military like it's not just going to be about a basketball game it's going to be like about some sort of like automated policing object are you talking and people about, aren't thinking about it in that way are you talking about the virtual games of basketball um well no like the lego they have lego robotics so that like oh. lego training kids up even from elementary school at least in our district to high school and you would program these lego robotic kits to do achievements right like there would be competitions and they were again very prestigious to have you know your robotics team but people aren't pausing to say where am i being led to with this robotics what does a robotic future look like um do I want a robot teacher? Do I want a robot surgeon? Do I, do we want to, you know, I keep telling my husband, like once the Boston Dynamics robot police dogs are roaming the streets, like I have to go, like I can't, <laughs> you know, no one's going to say, by the way, you know, that cool like trophy your kid won. Well, like this is the same technology that's going to be used to like turn the world into a militarized zone. 
if we don't stop it, like if we don't actually say we're not doing that. Yeah, but I don't see enough people doing that yet. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say no to something you don't really know what the end game is. It's like they just share a little bit of the end. But did they tell you in the movies? <laughs> right. Well, somebody told me everything you see in the movies, that's the truth. <laughs> when it <laughs> seems too far fetched. But um, so in these PCR tests, because you talked about in California, the kids being tested, are they collecting? And I've heard other people say this, that they're harvesting DNA. Do you know? That, that I don't your... know. The one in Chula Vista, it was a cartridge test. So it was like a blood, I think a finger prick. It wasn't, um, you know, I, I have a friend who's looking at, they were trying to get the contracts for the New York City school tests. And they, um, those contracts were in the city health department and were being sat on pretty solidly and they just got released. So, you know, he's going to spend some time over the weekend. But I mean, it's valuable data. I mean, it's hard to imagine that none of these companies are doing anything with the DNA that's tied to these tests. Would they tell you if they were? You know, I, I guess that's the, you know, and I've been doing some work, I'm gonna be doing a, um, a talk tomorrow about health impact bonds and, um, uh, wearable technology and some of these other things. And I was looking at the microbiome and nanotechnology and industrial agriculture. And, you know, I just found that in the Netherlands, there's a center for the microbiome, which is like your gut, you know, you know, yes. cause you're sort of a universe unto yourselves. Like, you know, a lot of the stuff that is you isn't actually physically you. It's like, you're just there hanging on, you know, like you're yeah. part of this bigger universe of stuff, including this microbiome in your gut. And that's very powerful for health. And so they're talking about, um, essentially providing personalized like nanotechnology microbiome management. Um, but these people were working with blockchain. In fact, the same people that set up the blockchain baby program. So, you know, and, and actually they're talking about the microbiome as collective like intelligence that the, 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 all the bacteria, that the decisions of how they work together or not to do chemistry in your body, like is this sort of collective consciousness. And so they're like, oh, this is kind of like blockchain. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, oh, when I was looking at it, I'm like, I know they're going to put this microbiome nanotechnology on blockchain and track you because they'll, they'll say, oh, like, you know, here's your daily update of your microbiome management. <laughs> Incredible. Because it's, it's a market. They can't leave us alone because we are the livestock. Like we're like, they're treating us like we're the livestock, which is with industrial farming model, not good. Yeah. So with the microbiome, was there anything more to that you were going to say about? No, I was just, I was just talking about like, I guess, electronic health records and management and. And now the microbiome. The DNA, like the, the, some of the, the companies that have made the most money in the past, you know, year, besides the, the technology companies are, are specifically biotech and healthcare. And because they are positioning genomics and the shift towards um, managing managed health. And they're positioning themselves, I think, for a biosecurity state that they that you will unless you manage your physical self to a way that they want you to manage it through these cutting edge personalized medicine technologies that you will be perceived of as a threat in the world. And, you know, this was not really my space. Like when I came into all of this, I was about finance. I was about education. I was about poverty. I was really not that deeply into the health systems. But once you 
really take a look at what the biotech sector is doing and the nanotechnology sectors are doing and, and with very little regulation. And I think oftentimes saying they don't really know what they're doing, but they're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> it, it really makes you question. And, and, and once that gets to a point of population level health, right? So this is not, you know, I have a, a health crisis and that's really terribly impacting my life or my prospects. And I have informed consent and I'm going to agree to your experimental treatment. Like that's, that's, a, that's a certain kind of thing, right? And that's a person's decision to make. Once that model gets imposed broadly across an entire population, then, you know, that's a whole different game, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, it's a okay. lot to think about. It's a lot, it's a lot. So I'm gonna just try to, in my own <laughs> really basic way, I'm just gonna try to break it down okay. a little bit, just a small piece of it. So, um, so my kid or a kid will be put on blockchain, data will be from birth or even in the womb. Mm -hmm. uh, his inf her information will be gathered along her lifetime, starting in the womb, then pre-K, there will be certain analytics uh, determining what kind of personality she'll have, whether she's a leader or uh, a follower, et cetera. She will be perhaps based on how she tests and uh, also probably depending on how they educate her, she may be um, put on a path to work in this job, you know, job X or career X. If she's a lucky one, I imagine that's at this right. point. If you actually get a whole career. <laughs> if you get the whole career, right. And then again, more information and her health and everything will be part of this bigger system. She will be, um, you know, become a, maybe a mother of herself, but everything is going to be already on the system, her healthcare, everything should be an integral part of that system and so on. And meanwhile, there will be uh, bets made on her by the market as to you know, how she so-called lives the life or plays the game, how her scores are, how her health is, if she follows the directions, let's say she's kind of, you know, somebody might say, oh, she's a little lazy. Well, we'll give her incentives to walk. We'll give her points if she goes and she exercises and all that. Um, so based on how she interacts with that system, then other people will be making lots of money uh, on everyone doing this, as well as there is a level, that level of certainly control on the individual and then on the group at a whole. Right. Is that kind of yeah. basically what we're dealing with here? And you could say yeah. that for every person in that society. You had talked about like if they're in let's say they commit a crime. I don't know how you could possibly commit a crime in that world, but I'm sure they'll let some people commit crimes. Shouldn't they put them in the jail or will it be? I mean, I think it will be a different kind of state control. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it will be, um, I mean, I'm sure if maybe if there's very serious crimes, although I, I was speaking with someone last night who was realizing in their community that there were serious crimes happening that were not being prosecuted like murders. So that's a little scary. Um, my sense is that 
if you're in, in poverty, it'll just be like you're on a diversion pathway. And that if you understand that the pathway concept, whether it's a cradle to career pathway or a continuum of care social work pathway or some sort of health management pathway, that the pathway is this game that they're, you know, as you progress on tasks on the pathway, that's the things that they're going to be gambling on. And if they're successful in advancing a world where a lot of uh, manufacturing, knowledge work, care work is automated or roboticized or put in AI and people are left without meaningful work, your job will just be to do your pathway. Like your job will be self-improvement. Like, you know, you're, and, and that is what will keep everyone busy so that you can't rebel. It, it will keep you trackable and it will keep the game going. And that, you'll just get the paycheck. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what UBI is likely going to be. It's, and I, I think, again, it will be conditional because they're, they talk about um, if it comes, this is all tied with the central banking system as well, the Federal Reserves and the other central banks in other countries. Um, so, you know, they're talking about creating a Fed account, these Fed dollars, crypto, you know, just doing your disbursement, your through the federal, like setting a, a federal account up for every person. And, and the federal reserves are not public institutions. It's a private entity, which is something, you know, most people are not, unless you're really into that, don't, aren't totally familiar with what the federal reserve is. Um, but that is likely the, the predication. If you have a UBI, if it comes through the federal reserve, then maybe you could earn a little bit extra if you sell your data. Right. And you when do. you say UBI, that is universal basic income. Okay. So if you're, I think we're going to see now with um, the new administration and sort of the pivot with this long-term economic collapse that they will be dangling here. You can have a thousand dollars a month, you know, or which is not enough to live on really. <laughs> we have like $12,000 a year is not enough for anybody to live on. Um, and I think many people would like to imagine that it's it's going to mean that you have some freedom or flexibility, but I, I don't think it is. I think it's it's just, it will be conditional and that you are expected to fulfill your obligations as a good citizen to do tasks, um, to continue to improve your human capital. Mm -hmm. um, and that maybe your data bank, you know, your blockchain identity, you can unlock that and sell data analytics for various reasons. And we're already seeing that with genomics. They're talking about setting up accounts where you can put your genomic sequencing up and then companies can pay you to access it. And we've seen that before, even in people's health records, they've they paid, it's almost like the new plasma banks, hmm. um, that that's the new currency as your data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think they just have to keep everyone busy because if people actually paused to see what was really happening and that happens before everyone is trackable, digitally trackable, like beyond what we currently have, they would have a real problem. I because I don't so. think most people would want to live like that. Well, it, and it's taking out, you know, again, looking at my kids, it's taking out nature. You're removing yeah. the kids and the relationship and just humans from you're taking, it's like you're taking out the spirit. Where is the soul? Very much. It's, there's, yeah. Uh, I feel that very much. It's a, an electrical system. If you understand our, 
bodies as like sort of like walking bags of water with some minerals and electricity, <laughs> like that sort of, you know, with a spirit. Um, they're looking to kind of re-engineer this because this is really much of this is being led by crazy electrical engineers. Like they're mad scientists. They would like to re-engineer us, our identities within a systems engineering industrial society element and to disconnect us from nature, disconnect us from spirit, disconnect us from faith. Um, because as such, we just become matter that they can shove around. But we're not that. Yeah, I think that's where the, the I mean, I, I can't see that happening ultimately because I can't see enough people liking it. I think at some point people are gonna be like, well, no, they're gonna put their gadgets down and wanna be outside or but maybe it'll be too late. I don't know. I don't know. Gosh. I mean, that's why I'm having such a hard time because the people that I thought would understand who I organized with, who, who understood the structure, the media messaging has been so solid about if you are socially responsible, you will just behave and, and do what you're told and not question um, who's benefiting from how this is being handled. Um, and so that's why I feel like my voice in this mix, you know, among some others is important to say like, no, this is actually an extension of slavery. This is an extension of the residential boarding schools of indigenous genocide. Like this is a long, but now if they've got the robots to do the work, everyone is under the umbrella now of being disposable, of being eliminated. And we have to kind of come to terms with that history but that I think in doing so, it can create a unified movement to, to resist, you know, because communities have been resisting that level of erasure for a long time. And I feel like I have a lot to learn from that, you know. Mm -hmm. Gosh, so, okay. So it's hard to think about <laughs> solutions. <laughs> it's I hard to like it. stop putting it all together. <laughs> So, okay, so fly off, though. That's like, my problem. Yeah. No. It, well, there's just so much information I know because when I go to your website, which, by the way, is wrenchingthegears.com. Wrench in. Wrench I should have had a better term. Wrench in the gears. Yeah. Wrench. Oh, of course. Like a wrench in the gears. Yes. Yeah. Of course. And, you know, everybody has to go look at that and just listen to some of your other talks because there's it's such big, you can't possibly fit it all into one an hour conversation they just I mean you have like three hour seminars or right I talk a lot well <laughs> I know there's a lot of information there's a lot of information I don't think you can get around that but um you know for me when I think about okay so solutions I mean I guess like it's it's with my kids it's um and me but we have to choose to step out. Like you opted that your child did not be a part of the program at her school or his school. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we have to just opt out. We have to just opt out. And before it gets to the point where we can't opt out or we're yeah. penalized for op opting out. I know there's a uh, homeschool movement right now uh, that's going on. So maybe, you know, this could be a part of that, just homeschooling. When you think about, I can't imagine having my kids uh, just doing all online learning, you know, and you can't 
and you don't, I don't even, wouldn't even know what they're learning. We don't know what they're being taught. So I think it's just about saying no about building community, mm-hmm. you know, with, you know, again, with COVID that does make it a little more difficult, <laughs> you know, with your neighbors and all that, but working on community, working on education, getting on, uh, you know, the school boards or, you know, your town committees, things like that. What would you say? What comes to your mind? What do you suggest? I mean, I think it's it's about, yeah, having those conversations, building community. Um, there's not a super, e- like I wish I could just say it was all, would all like come down, but I think getting clear about it yourself too, like educate yourself and, and think through, cause I don't want to tell anyone how to think about this. Like I have a lot of information. I always say I'd like to be wrong if you can find a good glaring hole that, cause that would be a relief. Um, but get firm in your values and your faith and your understanding of the world and then figure out your position in this machine and like how, how where you can stand. Like for me, as someone who's in my early fifties, I don't actually want to live in the world they're building, you know, and, and I have an adult child. So my circumstances are different than like a young parent, right? So I'm willing to be very vocal about that. I find that this is um, an anti-life agenda that is coming forward and that we should do everything we can in our power to question it. And I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't have lots of people here locally with me. Um, you know, we've had a couple soup like dinners. We just like, I make a pot of soup and people come over and we have like a small group and we, um, you know, we talk about things and just spend time together. Um, I do think that in, if you just looked at it on paper, like the, the, the resources, the material resources that these institutions have, that these powerful individuals have, like we don't have a match for that thing. But I do believe that there's more going on than meets the eye. And that even small groups of people acting with intention and principle can sort of break through some of these energetic systems. And that might sound a little corny, but like whatever your faith practice, you know, if you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, you know, other kinds of spirituality, like stand that's powerful. Like, I think there is something incredibly powerful because I don't think that the world is supposed to end with, you know, bioengineered tomato vaccines and us all sitting in tiny houses. I don't think that's how it's supposed to go. I don't think it is. So I think that if find people, put your risk, the extent that you can risk and be present, be clear in your heart and, um, and keep going. Because for me, like, I don't know the end. Like I was the person who used to always be like, okay, what's the next thing? Let's, you know, here's the plan. What's the plan? There isn't quite a plan for this. Nobody handed us a guidebook and said, this is, this is the destination. It's unfolding. So like, listen to your microbiome. <laughs> right, listen to your microbiome. You know, and also what's occurring to me is that by doing what you say, like by staying, um, you know, connected to your own spiritual space and connecting with other people, following, you know, I would say following your intuition and following your heart, when that ripples out, you know, it might, you know, somebody out there who might have a solution to this, it might inspire them to think, hey, this is another way we could do it because maybe there's a way that, 
you know, these, you know, entities could make lots of money in by not exploiting the people around the world. Maybe there's another solution that where we can, you know, opt yeah. out of the AI world. And, but we just don't know it yet because it hasn't come yet. But I, I really right. strongly believe that actually when we, we, especially as moms, because we are so intuitive, uh, and that's kind of what my podcast is about is asking moms to really tap into their intuition. And that's very powerful because that's where we will be then guided, guided to solutions as opposed to just ignoring yeah. it. And I mean, staying. I feel that. Mm -hmm. Especially like if we just want to stay it's in our, like it's a guidance. It's a guidance. Like it comes. And I think, and, and you know, I, I, I've said this before, but I, I, it really, the more you, practice it it's kind of like an exercising a muscle the more you sort of put yourself out and you take little risks and then you know are present it you get things back you get energy back you find people we you connect with other people each time like you get often more than you put out into the world like there it's it's a it's a beautiful thing but you have to believe that it, it's possible and i've seen it like i i i'm in a very different place now than I was in March when I, my world was really just looking at human capital finance and poverty management. Like my world has unfolded in unsettling ways, like very unsettling ways, but also um, connected me with, with a network of people who are really quite amazing and wonderful. So like I probably gotten more out of it than I ever expected to. Wonderful. I, I feel like, you know, you're following your purpose, you know, and that's what for each of us, when we do that, right, then things just happen, synchronicity, and we're drawn to yeah. this and that. It's just so cool. So we don't necessarily know where it's going. But I, I truly believe in, you know, a higher, you can say God, I, I believe in God, I believe in the universe, I believe in uh, a higher intelligence when i say intelligence i don't mean mind intelligence you know all that is yes and and i i mean i'm an optimist i think that that will prevail and i think if we all each of us do that as opposed to sticking in our little houses and not wanting to you know come out and you know talk to people or learn about everything and you know a lot of people just yeah. have been closed down through this pandemic. So we need to come out. We need to come out. Um, but the other thing I was going to say about that is, is, is coming from a place that isn't fear. You know, when we come up from a place of strength, like you have your knowledge and I'm learning so much from you and you're not, you don't seem afraid and scared. And so you're inspiring to me. And when I'm kind of come from and open this up and talk about it, it actually is really interesting. It's fascinating. It I mean, my major was human development and family studies. So I'm really fascinated by all these, you know, everything you're talking about, these connections. And, you know, that's how my mind works. I like crossword puzzles. I like seeing, yeah. you, you know, how it comes together and the connections. So, so I guess it doesn't have to be, you know, doom and gloom every day. We can have, um, a sense of feeling, you know, just empowered by the knowledge and yeah. not, you know, frozen in fear. So just putting it out there. No, I feel the same way. I mean, I, it sometimes if I can like put it in a map, get my hands around it, like name it, it feels more manageable.
And those people that we're talking about, whether it's, you know, the, I'm not even gonna name names, but those, you know, people and who have a lot of power, you know, I have to believe that there's also a part of them that can picture a world that's not necessarily repressing, taking the humanity and the soul out of the people that they have to live with on this planet. Now, I know that has happened over the, you know, probably millennial, but I have to believe that there are other solutions that they might look at when those solutions come and say, you know what, I like that. That feels better to me, you know, or maybe it'll be their daughter or somebody, you know, saying, right. you know, I think this, what about this dad? What about, you know, who knows? I don't know, but we got to stay positive. Thank you so much for oh, talking with you. me today. I, um, I really enjoyed it. I'm learning a lot. It's, oh, I'm learning a lot. I'm going to go to your, I, I really, this, the last, uh, couple of days I've been taking a lot of information in, you know, from your websites and stuff. And I'm going to continue because the more that you revisit it, the more I start, Oh, it kind of settles in and sinks. It's a little bit like learning a new language. Exactly. Or like, yeah. And it's sort of like when you get the puzzle, when you get the, ed, the frame of it, when you get the edge pieces and you're like, okay. And then you start putting the bits in and everybody has different bits. You know, everybody has, once you understand more or less the, 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 the structure, because it's a full on structure, it's interesting to hear like, oh, you know, this is where gut health fits in, you know? Right. Like, and it all fits in, as they say, we're all connected. It's all connected. So, well, thank you so much. Yes. All right. Take care.